For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. The ancient Bible theologian Augustine wrote, Our hearts were made for you, O Lord, and they are restless until they find their rest in you. And that's exactly what the writer to Hebrews is talking about. He wants us to not miss out on what God has for us. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Entering God's Rest. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. It's our new New Testament book for study on Sunday mornings, and what we do here at The Rock is go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So uh, we're picking up in chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to make it all the way to chapter 13. Not today, (laughs) though it may feel like it. Uh, We are only going to handle uh, most of chapter 4, Lord willing. And speaking of the Lord, let's go to him for prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we always like to acknowledge right at the start that apart from Jesus and your grace, we can do nothing. We can't understand these truths because they're spiritually discerned. We need the Spirit who can translate what, to our hearts what the true meaning that God is trying to get through in a still small voice to all who love him and call upon his name. So we ask, Father, God, that you would guide our, our time together in the word. You, you ordained this day. You brought these people for a reason. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. With that, can I uh, just remind you, if you have a cellular phone and want to keep it, <laughs> turn it off, all right? So just everybody just kind of do the little wiggle thing so nobody will know that was you binging during the prayer. Awesome, awesome. All right, let's begin. I was on an airplane, flying as one does on a plane, (laughs) seated next to a Japanese psychologist who apparently wanted to practice his English, which was fine by me, because I have lots of subjects we can talk about. The gospel, Jesus, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, the, the list is endless, pretty much. Now, when I got to the parts that talked about the inner transformation that the Lord makes, the spirit in your heart and the peace that he brings, I started to notice that he was leaning in a little bit, straightening up, paying attention, and asking questions. The English lesson had concluded, and now the fish was nibbling on the bay. Now... I often use in my own testimony, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, because it was something God used to draw me in. Come to me, the verse says, Jesus speaking. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I talked about that, and I talked about what that meant in my own heart and life. And as I did, he surprised me, kind of startled me, because he said in a rather... uh, loud voice and out of nowhere as I was speaking about peace, he said, I want that peace. (laughs) Really loud. I want that rest. 
And I was like, dude, chill out. I'm not jumping out of the plane. I'm here. I'm right here. We're just talking, you know. And there was a reason, of course, for that response because he's a psychologist and he's helping people all his life to enter into some sort of peace, a peace that is totally eluding his own grasp. How frustrating is that? No wonder he said, I want that peace like that. Well, that peace is not available in any psychology texts. It's not in a successful private practice or in piles and piles of yen. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. If you want rest, you're going to have to go to the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. So before the plane touched down, we were able to pray toward that peace. But there's something in every human heart that longs for peace. And it's this peace, and, and the writer has been talking about this for two chapters. He's calling it uh, God's rest, to enter into God's rest. And so uh, as Augustine wrote, he's a church father. He kind of got the theolo- theological systems rolling, so back in the 300s. And so we call him a church father. And Augustine wrote this, beautiful. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Oh, man, that is so for your refrigerator, for the desk, for the wall, for above the doors of the sanctuary. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. We have a God-shaped void, and we try fitting all these different things in there to find the rest, and it just doesn't happen until God, the shape of God in the form of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, fits in to the shape that he originally designed us to bear. And so when we talk about peace, we're not talking about the cessation of noise or taking a, 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 a vacation to a cabin somewhere where there's an absence of crazy activities. It's much deeper. It's soul rest. Soul rest. When nagging insecurities and feelings of inadequacies and menacing fears and worries and the weight and care of this world dissolves in an overwhelming sense of well-being that you can sing full-hearted with the hymnist that wrote, it is well with my soul. John 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, if you want a mission statement in one sentence, let me put it to you this way. The reason I came, I came so that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I think the author of Hebrews, maybe Pastor Paul, Paul the Apostle perhaps, would agree that that's a nice definition of what he's talking about when he says, enter God's rest. He's talking about an abundant life that's rich and full and satisfying because you you found out why you're here, why you're made, what your purpose is, where you're going, where you came from. All the big questions have been answered, and that's why you have peace. So clearly, as the writer's been saying now, coming up here, clearly some experience that kind of rest and some do not. 
And our writer really, really, really wants his listeners not to miss out on God's rest. Verse one. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of absolutely no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. So we're going to pause there. Now, in, this writer loves to wrap thoughts up with, let us therefore then. So there, there are a lot of them. In this chapter, we're going to pick three of them. If you want to make sure that you're hitting the bullseye, you're entering the fullness of what God has for you called his rest, then there are, some, there are three admonitions that start with, let us, therefore, do such and such. So the first of the three that we'll be looking at is right here. And you, there are actually more. You'll find them as we go around. But I picked these three. The first one being, let us be careful so that not even one in the Hebrew Christian congregation that's toying with the idea of going backwards, because going forward is so painful, when I go backwards, let us be careful that not even one person falls short of God's rest. Well, let's talk first of all about the word careful, because in the Greek, it's stronger than careful. In fact, shout out to you King James lovers. Uh, King James nailed it. Let us fear. The word in the Greek is phobeo, where we get the word phobia from. One writer put it this way. Oh, blessed phobia, being terrified of disobeying God, of hardening your heart, and of missing out on all that God has for you. Now, that's the kind of fear we all should have. In fact, it's called the fear of the Lord, and it's a good thing. Proverbs talks about it all the time. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can't know anything unless you have reverence for God. Unless you have reverence for God, what do you know? At the end of things, you're going to find out you missed everything because you didn't fear the Lord, the author of life itself. The fear of the Lord adds length of life and helps us to avoid evil. So careful, the same word for careful is, you know, when Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians chapter two, let us work out our salvation with fear, phobeo, with fear and trembling, because it is God who is within you, working to do his good pleasure. That's Philippians two. He's saying, you ought to walk this thing out with a, with a little bit of holy terror because we're talking about God. God is at work in you. And there are spiritual eternal consequences of your choices in a day's time. So we ought to be careful. So the word careful there, it just needs to be thinking of the careful. Like, for example, you see a spider, especially ladies, this is going to work for you. All right. You see a spider, be, uh, you know, hanging above the bed that's kind of opened up and you haven't made the bed yet. Okay. And, and uh, you know, you got a trouble with black widows in the area, you know, and so this thing's dangling and you're like, uh, and, and it falls, it drops onto your sheets. You're going to be very careful. You're going to be very careful as you go to sleep that night. 
aren't you? Well, first of all, some people are not going to sleep that night. <laughs> In that bed, they're renting a hotel, all right? Uh, yeah. You are going to be very careful that you make sure that that black widow is no longer breathing God's air, amen? <laughs> That's what he's talking about. Not being, be careful. He's being, he's saying, be very careful. Now, who's he talking about? Well, you were, if you weren't here last week, we don't know who the bad guys and the bad example is. He said, you don't want to be like them. They heard the gospel. Look what happened to them. Who's them? Oh, I got the cartoon for you again. Wednesday night, we showed it to you. It's the wandering Jews who fell short. It could have taken four months to get to the promised land. Four months. Instead of four months, 40 years. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm sorry. I start with the Brooklyn thing right away. <laughs> and I can do that. I'm related to them. So don't come up and say, you need to show more respect when you talk about the Jews. I is one. It's all right. <laughs> it's okay. Relax. Relax. It's okay. Uh, so here they are. What happened? Well, we, I got to bring you up to speed, even though we've been down this road. He says, the Jews heard the gospel because there's only one gospel. Have faith in me, walk with me, keep my decrees and be blessed. There's a promise. That's the gospel. They heard the same thing, but they didn't obey. Ten times there was a fiasco on the way from Egypt to Canaan. Ten times. God, and on number 10, he said, that's it with you people. Everyone 20 and older who have seen the 10 plagues with your own eyes, seen me bring water out of a rock, seen the pillar of fire and the cloud of glory to protect you from the desert sun, who ate manna that came down from heaven to feed your ungrateful bodies. <laughs> you remember what they said? All day long, all we ever get is manna. Manna, manna, manna. We're sick of it. They said, hey, Moses, listen, we had it better in Egypt. Those Egyptians, man, and they're talking about the slave pits. Those Egyptians, they know how to cook, man. They are garlic and onion and then the melon. Oh, they brought in this melon. We want to go back to Egypt. And many times the Lord said to Moses, step back. <laughs> step back. I don't want you to get singed. <laughs> The Lord was like 10 times. And so he tells them, he tells them finally, 20 and up, everybody, all the adults right here doing your kvetching, it's, it's a Yiddish word for complaining. Not one of you is going in. Why? Because of your disobedience and you will not believe. Now, instead of the, the land of milk and honey, and why does he call it? He nicknames it milk and honey. Why? Milk universal idea of it's got everything you need in there. It's sustenance. And honey, everything you need for a sweet life, I've got for you. That's the promised land, right? And all you have to do is trust in him. Here's what one writer said about the analogy of the promised land to the Christian life. The analogy of the unbelieving Israelites falling short of entering the promised land can convey two possible realities. There are people who, through their unbelief, ultimately miss out on heaven and perish. They have never known the Lord, but they miss out because they are willingly unbelievers. 
And there are believers who through bouts of unbelief and sin wander in frustration and fall short of what God had for them and the joy and the rest of the abundant life. In either case, unbelief must be avoided at all cost. Poster child for being saved but never entering God's rest. Samson. Samson is a Bible hero. Thank you for the chart, the map. Samson, Bible hero, mentioned in this very book in chapter 11. He had saving faith. You will see him. But his life was messed up. Did he ever enter into God's rest in the fullness of who he was supposed to be? No. He had a thing for Philistine girls. He had a thing for driving a wedge into the heart of his parents. He never got over anything. He was violent. He was vengeful. He was filled with pride and ego and always pushing it to the edge, flirting with disaster his whole life and even in his death, humiliating the Philistines, get on top of him, gouge out his eyeballs and say, come on out. They take him to the Philistine camp and they say, come on out. We've got a little monkey we got a little music kind of dance for us, Mr. Strong Boy. And he'd come out, and they'd all get drunk and party. That is not the abundant life that Christ promised to give us. He says, do you want to end up like that? Do you want to end up missing out on the promised land, the promise of what God had for you, the bullseye? I had a friend who said, my one prayer for years and years and years, Lord, don't let, I always close the prayer, Lord, don't let me miss the bullseye. When you thought of me, when you knit me together in my mother's womb, you had a purpose, you ordained the days for me, and you put me in your bow, and you shot, and you've got an intended target, I want to hit, boom, dead center. That's called entering God's rest and there will be so many people in heaven that did a lot, a lot of this and fell short. And this writer, pastor of the Hebrews, he's just saying, passionately saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Salvation is unconditional. You did nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to unearn something that you didn't earn in the first place. But... Effectiveness, enjoyment of your Christian life and future reward are all conditional. You choose, you choose. You know, mess up and be a holy mess, a holy nightmare for God, which he was for God. Or you're gonna enter his rest and be a streamlined arrow on that, you know, nothing's gonna stop me because I'm entering the rest. That's what this whole thing is about. We can have our verses back up there to take a look at. So he says, listen, here's what, where they failed. They heard the word of God. Moses was being told from God on Mount Sinai what to preach to them. In fact, if you, well, a lot in the Old Testament shows you what they were hearing. They were hearing the gospel. What, what happened? The message they heard from God, the gospel in Old Testament form was of zip value to them. Nothing. It didn't help them at all. The word of God just fell flat. 
They weren't benefited at all. They knew a lot. They said, amen. They were always saying this at the end because they would say, hey, we, we're believers because they'd always say, yes, we will do everything the Lord has asked us to do. You'll recall that. That appears several times. After the sermon, they always say, yes, we will do everything God told us to do. And then I could hear Moses say, of course you will. <laughs> what were they missing? Just one ingredient and one ingredient, you guys can just cause the whole thing to fall apart. It happens with cars, you know, <laughs> perfectly good car, but you're just missing the gas, you know? It's just one ingredient, but you know, you're not getting anywhere without the gas. I don't care what you say or do. The car's not moving without the gas, the bread that you want to eat, it's in the oven, and, and you spend hours doing everything, but it's not going to arise because you missed one pinch, just a pinch of leavening. That's all you missed, that you ruined the whole deal. The bread won't rise because it doesn't have a pinch. And what did Jesus say? You know how much faith you need? You need a pinch, a mustard seed of faith combined with what they heard, was enough to bring the spark and boom, life called entering God's rest. That's what it is. He's saying, Hebrews, don't get cocky. They had the gospel preached to them. They had worship services. They crossed through the, the sea and they're dancing with their tambourines and all of that, but they were missing faith and, uh, you know... How do we know they were missing faith? Because they didn't respond. Faith without works is dead. James chapter 2 and verse 26. You, faith is not just hearing. James says in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, don't deceive yourself and just be a hearer. Oh, I know all about the gospel. I've heard it for years. Hearer only. no but you must be a doer. So the faith enables you to say, listen, I believe God. I know the truth. Therefore, I am doing this. I am changing that. I am stopping this. I am starting that. Without this part, you didn't get this part. And they didn't. That's why they didn't go in. They didn't exit the exit ramp, promised land. Why? Because they were in unbelief. Unbelief, listen, is not a weak faith. It's not having legitimate doubts. Unbelief is an unwillingness. It's a posture of the heart that says, no, I won't. Unbelief is not, I can't, I don't have enough information. I don't. Unbelief is, I won't. And the two spies said, man, hey, they're big guys, but God's been with us. Look what he's done. We've got ample evidence of his faithfulness. If God is pleased with us, he's going to give us the land. It doesn't matter how big and tall they are. And they said, we have a choice. We won't. We won't. And these Hebrews that we're talking about, these Hebrew Christians, they just fill in the blank for yourself. They got tired of X, whatever you get tired of, and decide, you know what? I'm going to start saying I won't. I won't. Read. I won't. You need to pray. I won't. And you have all your reasons why. Some of them are pretty good. <laughs> he doesn't buy any of them. <laughs> but some of them are pretty good. 
It's a choice. It's a choice. So clearly, hearing, knowing the gospel counts for little, but hearing, trusting, and acting. I, I, I was talking to two people who came into my office. They wanted to get married. They didn't know the Lord. They just wanted to find a pastor and talk premarital and all of that stuff years and years ago. So I talked to them about faith, and they were right on the edge, especially the guy. And the guy said, I, I'd like to like, become a Christian. And I said, great, let me help you with the prayer. And we prayed the sinner's prayer, and I saw him later. And he said, hey, yeah, well, I asked him how things are going. And he said, hey, I moved across town. I got a new address. I got a new place. They have been living together. I don't see anything about it. They weren't Christians. And I said, what happened? He said, I moved out. I said, everything okay? And he goes, yeah, I became a Christian. Uh, remember? <laughs> and I said, well, who, did, who told you to move out? Isn't that a no-brainer? Yeah. He said, I believe in God now, and I got to do things his way. Oh, that's what he's talking about. That's faith. Everybody in America says they believe in God. I had a class, and I'm going down a bunny trail. <laughs> All right. I had this class at Secular College in the East Bay that I taught for eight years. And I'd always say, hey, just interested. How many of you would call yourselves, you believe in God? Just raise your hand. Every single time I did it for eight years, most of the class, all the hands go up. Go, oh, that's fascinating. I wrote, I believe in God on the, on the board. And I go, wow. So now I want you to think about these questions. How many of you read your Bible today? How many of you have a church that you go to every Sunday? How many of you have said no to sleeping with your girlfriend? That got a gasp. How many of you have repented of your sins and you talk about Jesus to other people and you make choices based on what would please God? Now would you raise your hand? One or two because they were Christians. Don't tell me you have faith, James says, that demons have faith and it's not gonna go pretty good for them. All right, and so let's just get cleared up. They heard the gospel, they went through the Red Sea, they did all of this, they, but they had a problem inside, and it was real faith. And so let me show you one more thing. Matthew 7, just, just pay attention to the words that are boldened. Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice like a wise man building his life on the rock of heaven and Christ himself. The rain comes, the storms in your life, they beat against your whole life, and yet you stand because you have your house built on the rock because you heard and you did. Next paragraph. But everyone who hears these words, so we have something in common. We were all in church. Both, both people were in church. Both people grew up in homes where they heard. Both people were in the Sunday school class. They heard, they know, they have a problem. They heard, but they don't put it into practice. That's foolish. It builds on the sand. Because if you just hear and don't do, because you don't have genuine faith, the storms of life come and they beat against your life and in the end, it's a disaster. Go back to the first one. They hear, they do. The next one. They hear, 
they're in the place. You can't tell who's who. Everybody in this place is hearing and some are hearing and doing and some are hearing and not doing. You don't know. Nobody knows. But you'll know when the crash comes. Then you know. Let's move on. Now, big chunk. Don't panic. We'll take it slow. (laughs) Now, on to better news. They said no, but some of us say yes. Let's talk about that. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God had said. I declared an oath in my anger. They, the unbelievers, shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken, notice he's calling the author of the scripture, not Moses in Genesis 2.2, which he's about to quote. He's just saying not Moses, but God. God has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And again on the seventh day, Genesis 2.2, God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. He goes on. So it still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. So therefore, God set a certain day, calling it today. Like, okay, the offer's still good. Just because they're saying no doesn't mean uh, he's going to take back the promise. He calls it today now, when a long time later, after he spoke through David in Psalm 95, as was said before, here comes Psalm 95 that you read at the opening of the service. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. In other words, just stop right there and go back to that. He's saying he already knows what the Jews are going to say. They're going to say, okay, Moses didn't go in and, uh, and 600,000 guys got barred. But then Joshua took them in. So we're going to go back to Judaism. Because that's the answer, because Joshua took him in. Oh, no, 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 no. There's yet uh, something else that Joshua, whose name means Jesus, of course, Moses is the law. Moses can't take them into rest, but Joshua, Yeshua, can lead them into the promised land. Oh, come on, there it is again, the gospel, not the law of Moses, but the grace of Yeshua. So they're saying, hey, we got Joshua. We're going back to Judaism. Joshua's pointing ahead, folks, because he wouldn't still say, hey, there's there's something else beyond Joshua in the promised land. Okay, next slide. There remains, and this finishes our section here, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. Let's just take it in bite-sized pieces. Okay, so don't panic. The first let us was let us be, class? Careful, very good. And number two will be let us trust and obey. All right, let us trust and obey. So let's let's look at three and four. Very good, awesome. Um, First of all, he's saying, listen, let's start with the negative. So God declared to these unbelievers, they are never going to get in. But there it is, his rest. He has a rest, and that implies that there's a rest that's available. And by the way, it's been available, and people have been taking advantage of it since the beginning of time, right? The first guy with a belly button, (laughs) 
right? He decided not to. He was an unbeliever. Cain, right? So what does Cain do? Cain hears the gospel. So does his brother Abel. Boys, when you approach me because of what happened with mom and dad, from now on, you and everyone who follows you will have to bring blood. You'll have to bring Jesus. You'll have to bring an offering. So Abel says, uh, Abel says, yes, yes, Lord. And Cain says, I won't. I will bring the work and efforts of my hands. And that will be good enough because these veggies that I've grown are top notch. And I sweated day and night and I grew these things and you're going to like them. And God said, that's messed up. Well, okay. <laughs> Who entered the rest? When his blood was shed, he, he was already in the rest, but he entered the fullness of God's rest. Now, what does it mean that God rested? He ties it to the seventh day and creation. It says, God, now... He's going to describe what he means by entering God's rest, and I'm glad he's going to do it. First of all, he says, whatever this rest is, it's his. It belongs to God. It's God's rest. And think about this. He's inviting you and me to share in his own rest. So we're going to talk about that. Um, so what, what's up with that? Here's one writer put it this way. Certainly, it cannot mean cessation of physical work or activity because God's at work. Jesus is very busy, and so are his people, his co-laborers, co-laborers. So whatever entering his rest is, it's not kicking back and not doing anything because we're pretty busy. Uh, there was plenty of work also for the Jews to go into the promised land. Oy vey, was there a lot to do. They had a clear land. They had a plant... Uh, crops. They had to take care of building their houses. And they had to fight the bad guys. There's a lot of work to do there. What kind of rest is that? Because you're not understanding what God means by entering his rest. One more quote, and I really like this one. It gets right at it. God finishes the initial creation in six days. The Hebrew word means to cease. God doesn't need to rest. You know, he runs and doesn't grow weary, all right? That kind of thing. Uh, he made the worlds. This is what he means. He made the worlds. He created man and was ready to live in fellowship with him the very next day. That was the entire reason behind the creation. And that seventh day now becomes a holy day because God was saying everything is done and prepared so that now on the next day, the whole point of creation can be fulfilled. Intimate fellowship with man. That's it. That's what he wanted. That's what the rest means. And so for 1,500 years, the Jews are keeping the Sabbath. It's Saturday. And they're forced to answer the question, why are we doing this? And the answer is because God prepared an entire world and then said, done with that part, now to fellowshipping with man. 
that's what they had to remember. That life was more than, you know, building and planting and traveling and doing our own thing. But once a week, they had to remember God rested because he wanted this with us. So we're going to do that for the day. (laughs) But really, he had so much more involved. Let's key in on this end of the section because it really gets to it. So he says, there remains a Shabbat, a rest for the people of God. And it's not about a day. It is not about a day. It has nothing to do with a day. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his This is unbelievable to me. God is saying, you want to join me in the peace that I have in my heart? Listen, I'm God. I'm not worried about anything. There's nothing on my radar that just says, makes me want to panic or run and hide. Nobody intimidates me. Uh, I've got a big house. (laughs) I've got lots and lots of food. I've got lots and lots of money. I'm never going to run out of money. I don't have any rivals. I don't have any enemies to speak of. (laughs) I have nothing that interrupts my rest. I'm at this perfect place. And guess what? I want to invite you who live in chaos to come on in and share the rest of God. I I want you to come and be a partaker to live like you have no cares in the world because I do. God hasn't worried at all. He doesn't worry. He doesn't fret because he has no reason to. So he says, why don't you come on in here, connect with me, and guess what? You'll live with me in my sphere of, ah, everything's going to work out. Why? Because he's God. And he says, and anybody who's standing here under my arm as my dearly loved son or daughter gets to enjoy the same benefits as my own heart. Yikes. That is yummy. (laughs) Paradise is open. The city's built. The table's prepared. The entrance fee is paid. And by the way, you don't have to work to make it happen. The entrance way is paid. He says, go ahead, kick up your feet. You don't have to work to get in or to be loved by me because I did the work. You kick up your feet because my feet had a nail go through them. I paid. So now, interesting, one writer caught it beautifully. Regarding God's rest from his work, the spirit has two occasions in mind. The rest that came after the initial creative work that established the world for fellowship between God and man and the rest that came after the saving work of Christ that enabled that fellowship to be restored forever. You don't have to worry What are you going to add to the cross of Jesus Christ? God on a piece of wood, dying in your place, agonizing that humility and that that 
Anxiety that caused him to sweat drops of blood. What are you going to add to that? What do you, that's like, you know, you had a $200 million debt and, and someone paid it off and you said, hey, you know, hey, let me take out this $100 bill. <coughs> add this $100, add this Benjamin to the pile. All right? You know, what an insult and how crazy are you? It was $200 million. Are you going to try to be good for a few days? You're going you're gonna to do this. You're going to do that. You're going to keep this day. You're not going to keep that day. Do you think it adds one thing to the cross of Christ where the Son of God is bleeding and dying in payment for your sin? And he's the one who cries out, it is paid in full. That's his last words. It is finished. Taleo in the Greek, it means paid in full. It's a sukhmanin. Come on in, but don't think about working. You can't do anything. Why would I have to go through that if you could do something? You can't do anything about it. Rest. Let's finish up. Now to the finale. The last let us. Oh, it's a good one. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall short by following their bad example there in the wilderness of disobedience. Notice, disobedience, unbelief are used interchangeably. So if you're wondering what unbelief is, just say disobedience. For the word of God now, now everyone knows this scripture. If you walk with the Lord for any amount of time, everyone's got this one, but out of context. Did you know it came after a two-chapter sermon on not disobeying God, but entering his rest by trusting and obeying? Check it out. Here's how he wraps up his sermon. For the word of God, you Hebrews, who are thinking about leaving Jesus for something else. Hebrews, listen, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation, Hebrews, you're playing your games and wanting to go backwards. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Not even you, Hebrew. Everything is uncovered, laid bare, including you, before the eyes. Oh, by the way, to whom me and you will give an account. Now he's saying, I love a close like that with a pastor. I just love it. It's like, come on, here we go. He's saying, number three, let us make every effort to enter that rest. Now, am I the only one who hears a paradox or oxymoron here? He's saying, get busy, rest. (laughs) You know, work at it, rest. (laughs) Okay, make every effort, by the way, in the Greek is like toil. Work hard to rest. Now, what's up with that? Well, it's a beautiful concept, and it will unlock a lot of stuff for you if you catch it. Physically speaking, I understand that kind of paradox. I have trouble sleeping from time to time, and it's been a few years. There's a lot you can do so that you can rest physically. 
you know, you can develop a bedtime routine. They say if you have a routine, the body knows, okay, it's night night's coming. You know, uh, uh, you can dim the lighting. There's something in our body, the hormones just start to say, hey, the sun's going down, it's time to hit the hay. Uh, you can avoid a large meal right before dinner. Like, that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, vigorous exercise. I don't go to bed hungry. I'm sorry. I don't go to bed hungry. Vigorous exercise routines. Unplug all electronic devices. What? <laughs> no television. No television? What, are you crazy? <laughs> Natural remedies. There's something in milk, there's something in turkey, there's something in herbal remedies, and there's something in pharmaceuticals. <laughs> that was a joke. Oh my gosh. There's a lot of stuff to do to rest. And if you're serious about getting the rest, you're going to be busy working so that you can rest. Do you get it? Well, spiritually speaking, it's the same sort of thing. Listen, if I'm going to trust in Jesus alone to get this rest, that means in every other place that I look for my strength has to go away. That's work. That's work. Uh, to put Jesus first in everything, because that's what having God's rest is all about. He's front and center. But to put him before everything else, that's a job. That's work. I mean, it goes on and on and on, you know, to desire. How about the desire to please people? You can't enter God's rest and enjoy it if you're a people pleaser. You're afraid of every last person who has an opinion, and everyone does. And they're not afraid to share it with you, amen? The rest, <laughs> the need for recognition. I want people to like me. I want people to include me. I'm jealous of him. I'm coveting that. I'm envious of her. That isn't what God's rest is about. And those are the things that sabotage the rest. And your work, that you work, let us work diligently, let us sweat about, is getting rid of everything that sabotages the rest that we could be enjoying. And those threats are everywhere. They pop up like those, you know, like game at the arcades, the mole, smash a mole, you know? Uh, the mole jump, jumps up and you hit it with a hammer and another one jumps up over here, you hit it with a hammer and then another one jumps up. Clearly, you don't like that game. <laughs> Do you ever go to Scandia? Do you guys get out? You need to get out more. Once you handle one thing, you're like, good, good, that, done, boom, something else. That's what he's saying. You've got to work. You gotta work. There are two approaches to this work because God gave us the power, the weapon to do the work. We just need to learn how to use the power. Or you're going to end up in one of two ways. First of all, the coots. There's a coot way. Let me show you a picture. The coot, crazy as a coot, all right? They're birds and, and they're crazy. They make crazy sounds and they go underwater, one minute they're above water, one minute they're drowning, they're crazy, right? But what's funny about the coots is that it takes them about a mile of runway to, to lift off. So they're just fun to watch, because they're like, okay, here we go, and, and you just watch them all the way, and they're like this far above the water. It's like, dude, 
Make up your mind. <laughs> Get up in the air. What are you doing? Are you just, just, you're just, we're just soaring over the water right now, you know? And so they're just crazy. A lot of work for very little yield. They're crazy. They're good. All right. And that, now you've got this guy. Okay, this guy looks down at the coots and goes, what's up with you guys? <laughs> he steps off his perch on a high rock and he goes like this. <laughs> All day long, he says, wait, wait, oh, I'm gonna work now. Woo. <laughs> that was hard. Oh, I'm gonna work again, watch it. <laughs> you crazy coots. Looking down at them, saying, are you crazy? What are you trying to do? You flappers? You know? <laughs> the Holy Spirit is called pneuma in the Greek and ruach in the Hebrew. It means wind. He gave us the tool, the wind, and he says, just work to learn how to not work. Work at resting. Work at learning how to hold those flappers still and let me provide the lift. And that is called living and entering God's rest because you're walking with him. And everything that's saying, hey, it's all about you or live, uh, make a selfish remark right now or start to entertain that lust or whatever, it's like, oh, dude, you are, you're threatening me right now. You're going to turn me into a coot, you know? <laughs> What is it? This is, look, one shot to the sinful nature. Stop with, uh, you know, this, you know, grab a ballpoint pen and start stabbing yourself, all right? Spiritually speaking, the sinful nature. Oh, 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 I'm trying to stop. I'm trying to stop. I'm just trying to start doing this. I'm bleeding. You know what? No, that doesn't work. You take the sword of the spirit. You hold it right there. One thrust, boom. It's going to save you a lot of agonizing. All this stuff, oh, 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 okay. I'm dying to it, whatever. When lust comes your way, you're a married man. Are you kidding me? You're going to play around with this? I'm going to call a friend. I'm going to get accountable. I'm going to go, please, stop. Is that working? It's not working. Why? Because you're not manning up to this maneuver by the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. But I missed the part that says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You will soar. You will embrace God's peace. Instead of this stuff, don't do that. Well, my favorite part is the part of the verse that everyone knows. For the word of God has confronted you, Hebrews. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Here's what he's saying to the Hebrews. You've been confronted, and guess who's making the call? The word of God is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, was with God, and the word was God. Is there a distinction between gospel and word of God and God? Not really. 
So he's saying, you folks have been confronted now with a decision. And God's word has cut its way into the deepest, darkest recesses of your soul. Because he's the one who knit you together at the DNA level. At the molecular level, he knows you. He's saying to the Hebrews, God's got your number, man. He knows everything about you. Number one, he reveals to you your sinfulness so that you'll need the Savior. But he knows and he sees everything about you. You know those nasty images that Homeland Security takes of everybody at the airport with your arms up like this? Yikes. They see everything. And... uh, This is the word of God. This is the word of God. He sees everything. He knows everything. He's cut away. Hebrews, you tell me, oh, I'm going to do it tomorrow. Or, you know, there's no sense in playing games, making excuses, playing dumb, pretending like you don't know. Or that someday, maybe, yeah, but you know. (laughs) My parents abused me. Or whatever. (laughs) He says, Oh, come on, it's not going to fly. You're standing before God now like this. Helpless, exposed, known more than you know, and yet loved and paid for and invited all the same. Come on in. I know it all. And I know more than you think I know. And I still want you to be at the table. There's a place for you. I've prepared for you. Heaven's not complete unless you're there. Come and enter my joy. I know it all. And by the way, you have an appointment with me anyway. So what is Paul saying to these Hebrews? He's saying, make your decision right now. It's a tough time for you. And you want to get bitter, you want to play your game, and you want to go backwards, right? But you already know Christ, or so you say. Just make your decision with this one thought. You're going to be explaining it to him one day. So if you just keep that in mind, that God has just kind of outed you for everything that's going on in your mind, for all the reasons why you want to go backwards, all the reasons why you want to put it in neutral, all the reasons why it's everybody else's fault, And all the reasons why you can't just walk with me in holiness. You're going to explain to him why he didn't give you enough resources. You're going to tell him why his command and his enablement wasn't enough. So he said, just keep in mind, make your choice now. You've been confronted. And the sword will do two things. The sword will protect you and cut the way for you to enter into Canaan and go before you. Or the sword is a weapon of correction to somebody who says, no, I'm your enemy. I want nothing to do with you. I won't. So now you need some correction. That's what he's saying. That's the context of the word of God is living and it's sharp like a double-edged sword. So he says, listen, You want Father God, the great physician, to have a scalpel and say, hey, Father, I got this spot right here. Can you just help me out? And he goes, yeah, of course. Or are you going to hide that thing 
and not be honest with him and it not be a source of benefit, but a sword that brings correction instead. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your living word and I can't add anything to what you've already said. So may your spirit grace us with the ability to apply and in that choice to say I will and enter your rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.